All right, church, good morning once again. So glad to be here with you, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're continuing. Uh, this is the second sermon in a series uh, uh, that we're calling Parables and Miracles. We're walking through Matthew chapters 13 and 14 and looking at what Jesus did and accomplished and taught in these chapters. And what we see is a bunch of teaching through uh, these uh, stories called parables, and, uh, and then we see him uh, doing these incredible miracles. Uh, we recognize that two of them are united in that they're both telling us something about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is proclaiming it. He's demonstrating it. And it's our job as, as listeners, as readers, to come and to engage with that and allow it to speak and to transform our hearts. And so last week as we began the series, uh, the way that Matthew 13 is laid out, Jesus tells this parable. It's uh, called the parable of the sower. Or we looked at the sower, the seed, and the soils last week. And so he tells it, and then there's this little interlude where the disciples ask him, like, hey, why are you telling parables? What, what, why are you teaching this way? Uh, because they recognize that in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and earlier a lot of times Jesus had spoken and taught in very direct manner. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Uh, and you know what I mean? So he was giving this kind of very direct, practical teaching. And, and the disciples could recognize that something had shifted in the way that he was communicating. Now all of a sudden, he was speaking much more and almost exclusively through parables, and they want to understand why that was happening. And so that's inserted here in, in the verses that we're going to look at today in verses 10 through 17. And then it picks back up in verse 18 where Jesus explains the parable, and we, and we looked at that last week. And so Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was writing the gospel, uh, did this for a very specific purpose because he was like, hey, I'm about to lay out a bunch of Jesus' parables here, but it's really important that you understand why he's preaching and teaching this way so that you can engage with it properly. And so that's what we're going to take some time this morning to just look at this question of why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he use this device, this, this speaking method? Uh, why did he do it this way? Um, and, and there's some real, it's going to call us into action. It's going to call us to some real personal connection with the, the answer to that question. So um, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Scripture, and we'll begin to explore this question. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thanks for this opportunity to come and to study your word. It's such a, a gift to us. We treasure it. We value it. Um, God, it's, uh, it's rich and it's full. We don't worship the word. We worship you. Um, but we're grateful for the word because of what it shows us and what it teaches us about who you are and how you would desire for us to live. Uh, let us come with open hearts, uh, with soil that's been, been tilled up and is ready to receive the the seed of your word, uh, your teaching about the kingdom, um, so that we can bear fruit for your kingdom, and so that we can glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we begin to, to, to jump in here in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, before we read it, I just want to ask you if you had to answer this question, why did Jesus teach in parables? Uh, think for a moment in your head. What, why do you think he did it? Why did Jesus teach in parables if you had to see it? And I see you guys are reading it, so you're probably trying to cheat ahead and find the answer, right? But but if you said, uh, if somebody came up to you like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing and Jesus, whatever, like, he told a lot of stories. Why did he do that? How would you answer them? What, what answer would you give to that question? So ponder that for a moment, and uh, then let's, let's dig in. Fortunately, Jesus told us the answer, so, <laughs> so we don't have to ponder for too long. But let's see if what he says matches up with what you would have said uh, in your answer. Um, so Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, it says this, Then the disciples came, and they said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so this is Jesus' very succinct answer to their, their question. Right? And so he probably got done, and they're probably like, man, just go back to the parables, because that was, that was actually a little more easy to understand than what you just told me there, right? But, but what we see... Jesus is saying clearly here, and I, I don't know what you guys had in your head, but if, if someone were to ask me that question, I'd probably say, well, Jesus uses parables because he wants to take these really difficult concepts of the kingdom, and he wants to make them more easily understandable. And so he tells these kind of simple stories so that we can understand the kingdom better. Would, it, would anybody else have had an answer kind of similar to that? For right? No, nobody. Okay, nobody else was thinking that. All right, that's good. So <laughs> that's what I would have said, so I'm just going to preach to myself here. So Ezra, you were half right because... Um, he says, I did come and teach the parables to reveal the truth of the kingdom to some, but I also did it to conceal the truth of the kingdom from others. Like, man, Jesus, that doesn't sound very Jesus-like, right? Like, Jesus, you know, why would he do it in a way that hides the truth from some people but reveals it to others? That there's something that maybe doesn't quite square up with our understanding of that. Like, that seems like a peculiar thing to say. And so, that's what we're going to dig into. Not only why did he do it that way, but how is a parable able to do those two things at the same time, right? How is a parable able to reveal the truth to some and conceal it from others? And so that's what we're going to dig into and try and understand, not just from a theoretical, scholarly standpoint, but to understand it's important for us to know the answer to this question because we've got to figure out, hey, when I look at this, Jesus, are you trying to reveal this to me or is this being concealed to me? Where do I fall in that, right? And so that's the question that's at the back of what we're looking at. So let's begin just trying to define what a parable is and... Uh, there's lots of definitions you could find out there. I was reading a commentary from David Platt this week, and he said it this way, and I thought this was pretty good. He said, a parable is a practical story that's often framed as a simile that illustrates a spiritual truth. And so let's break that down a little bit. Uh, and so a practical story. It's a story with kind of a simple storyline that people can follow, and Jesus used everyday things to explain. And so, so for us, when we read a story about a farmer sowing seed or we read about a fisherman pulling nets out of the sea and stuff, that seems a little foreign to us. We've got to stretch ourselves a little bit to put ourselves in that context. But to the people that Jesus was speaking to, to his direct audience, that was their everyday life, that they understood that implicitly. They understood exactly what he was talking about. And so if Jesus were here today speaking, he might talk about, uh, you know, dealing with traffic on the Schuylkill, or he might talk about trying to balance an incredibly busy schedule between home and church and work and school and friends and, and responsibilities, like stuff that we all have to deal with all the time about, you know, people leaving rude comments on social media or whatever it is. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain things that are universal that I can just throw out and you'd be like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, right? And so that's what Jesus was doing. He was talking in their language into concepts and things that they understood that was part of their everyday life. Nobody had to Jesus, you know, as preachers, we sometimes need to say, now in, in Jesus' time, uh, the way that they would sow seed is they would sow it, and then they would till the soil because that's, but he didn't have to do all that. They already understood that. They got that, right? And so he was speaking right into their language. And 
And honestly, as a preacher, that's my, my goal is when I come up here, I want to preach in your language. I don't want to try and take you to some other place. I want to, I want to bring the truth to where you're at every day. And so Jesus was doing this through the parables, a practical story that's often framed as a simile, and all that means is, is the word like is in there, right? And so often he'll begin a parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like blah, 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 right? And so it, it indicates to us that he's telling a story, but the story is not an end of itself. The story is meant to help us see something else. And what the object of that is is often preceded by the light, right? So the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer sowing seeds in a field. Okay, wow, what does that mean, Jesus? That's, that's interesting, right? The third thing is he says that it illustrates a spiritual truth. There's a moral to the story. So it's not just a story in and of itself, but there's a deeper moral that's usually pretty close to the surface that you can, you can understand. You hear the story, and you're like, okay, that's a simple story. I understood who the people were. I understand what happened, and I understood what the point was that he was getting at. And so that's, that's what a parable is. Now, how does a parable conceal truth from some and reveal it to others? How does it do this? Well, one of the ways that it does this is that it, it presents truth in a simple illustration where most people can agree on what is good and what is not good. When you hear a parable, when you hear the story, it's pretty clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Who are the ones that are doing it right? Who are the ones that are doing it wrong? What's the desired result? Uh, you know, what's actually uh, that comes out of it? Uh, I read a book a while ago uh, by a guy named Donald Miller, and he wrote this book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And, um, and it was about how he was uh, trying to make a movie of his life, right? It's a very humble thing to do is like make a movie of your own life, right? So, but anyways, he, uh, he met with these gurus out in, in Hollywood of these, these story writers and, and trying to understand how to write a great story, how to turn his mundane and kind of boring life into a great movie, a great story. And what this uh, avowed atheist professor uh, said is he said the reason that stories are junk today, the reason that there aren't many good stories being written and that, that most of us, when we go to the movies, we come out and we're like, ah, oh, that was all right. I mean, I don't know. It was, it was like, okay, I, I kind of, the plot was a little convoluted and I, I didn't feel great coming out, right? The reason that is, is because uh, there's no clear good and bad in story quite often anymore, right? That, that, that there's not a moral right who wins the day, and that's what makes for a good story. That's where, that's where we can stand up and cheer. The problem is that so many times we've embraced, and it's good to have character development, but so many times now the, the villains have redeeming qualities and, and, and the good guys have all these flaws and struggles and, and, and shortcomings that by the end of the movie you're like, I'm not sure who I'm rooting for. It's, it's coming up to the climax, and I don't know if I want the main character uh, to get shot or not. I'm not really, I haven't decided how I feel, right? And it leaves us feeling conflicted, and so we don't have that joyous feeling that we had watch Star Wars and the Death, Death Star blew up, right? And everybody's like, yeah, right? Because good went out against evil, right? And so, so in Jesus' stories, when he tells a parable, there's a clear good and there's a clear bad, right? To, to take this in the framework of what we looked at last week, there was the seed in the soils. The seed went into the soil. Some of the soil was clearly good and productive, and some of the soil was clearly bad and unproductive. And so anyone listening to the story could all come onto the same page and agree like, okay, yeah, so the good soil, that's it bears fruit. That's what, that's what was good. Uh, the soil that doesn't bear fruit, that's bad. And so everybody kind of, it, it draws us in. A parable draws us all to the place where we can all come to a point of agreement and say, all right, yes, we're on the same page. We agree. This is good and this is not good. But it doesn't stop there. What a parable does is then it leaves this question hanging out there and it invites the listener to engage. It invites the listener to say, okay, I see the story. I see the good and the bad. Where do I fit into that story? Am I one of the soils that's bearing fruit? Or am I a soil that's not bearing fruit? If I'm not bearing fruit, why am I not bearing fruit? What did, what did Jesus lay out here, right? And so it in, invites us to engage. Like any good sermon should invite us to engage. Much like most other pastors, when I started preaching, I thought that if I just got up here and said, 
Jesus died for your sins, and he's offering you free uh, salvation, and we should glorify Jesus. Let's just glorify Jesus, and I just proclaimed these truths. I thought that would make for a good sermon, and the reality is, is that's an okay sermon. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. You could go a lot worse than that, right? Uh, but sermons that, that transform people's lives invite them in. It doesn't just put up this truth to be admired. It takes the truth, and it says, okay, what does this mean for you? Where you're at today and the situation that you're at, how do you engage with this truth and how does this truth transform the way that you're living? And so when, uh, when we do our job properly, that's what we do. We bring the truth into our lives and we challenge you to engage with it, to allow it to transform and change you. And that's what a parable, in its very nature, it does that. It presents a truth and then it says, uh, it, it, it asks the listener to engage. And so we begin to see this picture of, okay, this is how a parable is able to reveal the truth to some and it conceals it from others. To those who are willing to push in deeper, who are able to ask the next question, it will reveal great truth and it'll have an impact and it'll change your life. But for those who want to just stay on the surface and just kind of say like, oh yeah, some seeds, some soil's bad, some soil's good. I got it. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense, right? That's, that's good. Um, if that's where you want to stay, then the truth has been concealed from you. Or even to go another layer deeper, if, if you listen to the parable of the sower and the seeds, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about and you weren't here last week, you're just going to have to go listen to it online, right? <laughs> or you can read through it real quick. But um, if you listened to that sermon last week and you said, okay, I get it. Now I understand why when I talk, some people listen and they're really responsive and other people don't listen and they're not responsive. And you put the, the application out there and gave it, took it as a way to understand the world. That's one level of truth that was in there but you didn't allow it to come all the way into your heart because ultimately you've got to turn the focus inward and say, what about my heart, <laughs> right? I'm not identifying, all right, uh, rocky soil, shallow soil, uh, you know, uh, fertilized soil with like all kinds of pesticides. It's not good, right? You got to look in your own heart and say, what kind of soil's in here, right? That's, that's, where, you, that's where the truth becomes revealed and for others it's concealed. Um, now, one of the challenges is that we don't always get to see this in the Gospels. When Jesus tells a parable, a lot of times we're not given individual responses. We don't see how people responded. It might say the crowd continued to gather or the crowd dissipated, but we don't often hear that this person responded in this way to the parable. But, but if we look elsewhere in Scripture, there's a really uh, powerful example of this, the power of parable, the power of the story. And it happens over in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so if you want to kind of bookmark yourself in there, Matthew chapter 13 and 2 Samuel is about halfway through the Old Testament. And you got Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and 2 Samuel for 2 Kings. So if you're anywhere around those, you're, you're in the right neighborhood, right? But 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, and, and let me set the stage for what's going on here. So you guys remember David and Goliath. Uh, David was a shepherd boy. He, came, uh, he was anointed to be the future king of Israel. He defeated this enemy, Goliath. It was this incredible story. He went through all these trouble, troubles and, and trials and ultimately ended up becoming the king of Israel. And, and he was known as a man after God's own heart, and things were good, and it was, it was the glory days of the nation of Israel. Um, but then as he aged, uh, Scripture tells us that there came a time when the kings would go out to war. But we see that king David didn't go out to war. He stayed home. He sent others out to fight the battles for him, and he stayed at home. And while he was at home, he was walking on his rooftop, and he noticed this beautiful woman bathing down in the city. And so he sent his guys, and he said, hey, go get that woman for me. I want her, right? He brought her to the palace. And so um, things transpire. <laughs> she's with child. And, uh, and so he's got himself into a real difficulty because it turns out that she's married. Uh, she has this husband, Uriah, who's a, a soldier, and he's a, he's a loyal and valiant soldier, and he's off on the front lines fighting while all this is happening. And so, so David hatches this plan to, to kind of get himself out of this pickle. He, he invites Uriah to come back from the front lines um, uh, to give a report, 
and, uh, and he assumes that he'll go home and stay at his home. But Uriah is such an honorable man that he said, my brothers are out there fighting on the battlefield. I'm not going to go home and sleep at my home. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to sleep on the palace floor until they send me back to the front lines. And so David's plan to kind of cover his tracks fails. And so he sends Uriah back out and he sends word to the commanders to go to the front line and start fighting really hard and then pull back from Uriah so that he'll be killed. And they do it and he dies. It's this horrible thing that, that David does, a horrible sin. And so Nathan, uh, the prophet, is sent by the Lord to go and approach David and listen to how he does it. It says in uh, 2 uh, Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Hey, you killed Uriah, <laughs> and you stole a wife that wasn't yours, and that was wrong, because what would David have done? He might have responded, but he might have been like, oh, no, 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 listen, listen, I had to do that. There was reasons, there was justification, uh, you know, it, it was necessary, and he might have tried to, uh, if confronted directly, he might have weaseled his way out of it. And so watch how he uses parable to draw him in, right? He said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's a horrible story, right? <laughs> this one guy's got, you know, hills full of flocks, and, and so a, a, a traveler comes from out of town, and he doesn't want to spare any of his abundance of flock to provide a meal for him, so he goes to this poor man, and he takes this, this lamb that he loves, this, 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 this beautiful member of his family, and he takes it, and he slaughters it, and he serves it to this traveler's dinner. And we're horrified, right? Like, what a horrible thing. What a, we can all agree, right? It's a parable, right? There's good and there's bad, and it's really clear which one is bad, and we're horrified by it. Let's look at David's response. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Right? Ah, <laughs> he's trapped. That's what a parable does to us. It gets us. We look at it and we're like, Man, that's so wrong. That's so messed up. Oh, wait, that's me. I'm the man. I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who sent Jesus to the cross. And so this is a, this is a powerful thing when we look at this. And, 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 and years ago, um, I, I discovered this, this powerful thing when I started reading through the Gospels. Instead of looking at Jesus and looking at the disciples and trying to figure out how I'm like them and doing the good things like them, I started looking at the Pharisees when they responded to Jesus. And I started to ask, man, how am I a little bit like those guys? How do I doubt? How do I question? How do I try and pursue self-salvation and and, and God used that to, to show me areas in my heart where, where I hadn't surrendered, where I wasn't living in the way that he would desire for me to live, where my heart was much like the Pharisees. And so, so when we look at the, the parable, um, we don't always want to be negative, but we do want to look at the negative thing and say, hey, is there an element of that in my own heart? And as we look at parables over the next several weeks and we're looking at this, that's how we want to come to it. We want to look at it and say, like, man, I'm aspiring for the good thing, but is there an element of the bad thing that exists in me that I need to address, that I need to deal with? Do I need to acknowledge that? David did that. He was trapped, right? He couldn't, he couldn't deny that he was just like that man. The parable presents the listener with a choice. It can't just be listened to. You can either interact, engage, personalize, and grow, or you can stay on the surface and, and choose not to engage. 
And so there's this element of, of choice. And so one of the real ways that a parable reveals and conceals is because the listener has a choice. The listener can choose what they're going to do with that parable. Are they going to push in deeper or are they just going to hang out on the surface? But the other thing that Jesus said, which is, which is kind of fascinating, is that he said not only does it present them with a choice, but it also is part of God's sovereign will, that it's a revelation of, of prophecy, that the prophet Isaiah prophesied that this is going to happen. And so part of the reason why people are hearing and not hearing and seeing and not seeing is because it's exactly what God had prophesied was going to happen through the prophet Isaiah. And so there's a part of us that kind of struggles with that. Okay, so is it, is it the people's choice or is it God's sovereign will? Which one of these is it? What's, what's at play here? Why is this happening? And uh, Don Carson, another commentator, laid it out this way, and I thought this was really helpful. He says this. He says, Matthew has taken up these themes in greater detail because he wishes simultaneously to affirm that what is taking place in the ministry of Jesus is, on the one hand, the decreed will of God and the result of biblical prophecy, and on the other hand, a terrible rebellion, gross spiritual dullness, and chronic unbelief. This places the responsibility for the divine rejection of those who fail to become disciples on their own shoulders, while guaranteeing that none of what is taking place stands outside of God's control and plan. So what he's saying is, that, yes, it's, it's part of God's control. It's, it's part of God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus would come and proclaim the truth and be rejected and despised by men and sent to a cross and crucified so that he could pay the penalty for our sins and rise again in victory over, over death and sin and be able to offer us forgiveness and freedom, that, that that was part of God's plan. But those who sent him to the cross are still morally responsible for their, their part in it. You guys remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right? That Joseph's brothers, uh, plan A was to kill their brother because they were jealous of him. And uh, plan B ended up selling him into slavery. So it was kind of a lose-lose for Joseph, right? <laughs> he didn't have many good options, but he got the one that kept him alive. And so he was sold into slavery and through a number of things, ended up rising to the, uh, an extremely powerful position in Egypt. And then he had an opportunity. His brothers came. There was a famine in the land, and they came asking uh, for help. And he was in a position uh, to exact retribution on them, right? To get even. To, and, and he looked at him and he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. They were morally responsible for their actions, and yet, in the midst of that, God was working out a plan to save his people. And that's what we see happening here, that there's a moral responsibility on each listener to respond to Jesus, but at the same time, God's sovereign will and plan is being enacted. And so to look a little bit further into the second piece of this, this, this fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, once again, he's re referencing Isaiah. Most of us have to kind of go back and read and look. Uh, his listeners would have been very familiar with the prophet Isaiah, and they would have known exactly the section of Scripture that Jesus was pointing to. And it's Isaiah chapter 6, and we're actually going to look at the whole chapter because it gives some really good context on, on what was going on and what it was demonstrating about what was happening in Jesus' day as well. And so if you look in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that, that represents his glory, right? The train of his robe. If you think about the royal wedding, right, uh, and uh, Princess Kate had, like, the super long uh, uh, train, like, going down the aisle, right? And in this, the fairy tale stories, the train's so long, it's like going out the front door, right? The, the more train, the more glory, the more magnificent it is, right? The train of God's robe is filling the temple. So it's, his, his, his glory is just overwhelming, in Isaiah's view, right? Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, demonstrating the holiness of God. And 
Uh, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so it's just this picture of Isaiah coming into the fullness of the glory of God. And how does he respond? Is he, high five, God, I've been waiting to see you, man. This is so awesome, right? Is that what he does? No. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's like, oh, I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I don't deserve to be here. Then one of the seraphim flew over to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and the blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's not a very good assignment, right? <laughs> You'd hope if the Lord came to you, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd send you out like, um, you know, on a victory parade. If he said, hey, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim some hard truth and nobody's going to listen. So he says, how long do I have to do this, Lord? <laughs> how long, O oh Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So we see this picture of Isaiah, and so in the context of what we're talking about, Isaiah is the one who comes and he hears, right? It's been revealed to him. God's will, God's truth has been revealed to Isaiah, and he's sent to take the word to the people who, who, from whom it'll be concealed. And so, so one thing that we can do here is we can look at Isaiah as one who heard the revelation of God, and we can say, how can we do what he did? How can we imitate his character? What was it that positioned him to hear from God, because that's where we want to be ultimately, right? When we come to a parable, we want to be the ones to whom it's revealed, not the ones to whom it's concealed. And so, so let's look at what Isaiah did here. Number one, he was impacted by the glory of the Lord, right? That he saw the glory of the Lord and it amazed him. He was awestruck. The word glory has, has the idea of weight connected it. It carried a lot of weight in his life, in his view. And so the question for us is how much weight does God's glory carry in our life? There's lots of things that, that carry weight in our life, right? Our family carries some necessary and important weight in our life that we have responsibilities there, that, that our boss, our supervisor has weight because they have the right to hire or fire us or, or give us a raise or, or demote us, right? And so, so they carry their opinion, their, their view that, that carries some weight, uh, that people are full of opinions all over social media, right? And that carries some weight in our life. Sometimes we, we change how we are because of what we see out there. And the question is, how much weight does God carry? How much glory does God get in your life? How much weight does he have in your heart? Does he have the most weight? Does he have the weight that, that he should have in our heart, the way that it impacted Isaiah? Does it impact us? Number two, he was aware of his sinfulness, not only of himself, but of his nation, of his people. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a, a land of unclean lips, right? And so, so he was instantly aware of his brokenness, his sinfulness, his unworthiness to stand before God. Now, it's not hard to look around our nation and kind of say, we live in a nation of unclean lips, right? <laughs> like we can, we can pretty much, it's like getting us on the same page. We all agree with that, but, but do you turn it inward as well and you say, you know what? I'm part of the problem. I'm not submitted to God. Uh, I, 
haven't, I haven't sought his forgiveness. I'm not living in the way that I should. I know the law, and yet I choose to do otherwise. And so he was aware of his sin and his unworthiness. But number three, and this is super powerful, his sin was atoned for, and his guilt was taken away as a free gift of grace, right? That he didn't do anything. He didn't say, Lord, let me serve you. Let me do this. He just wallowed up in a ball and said, I am unworthy. And then uh, the seraphim brought him over a coal and touched his lips. He came and he brought it to him and he said, now you're clean. You've been cleansed. And so for those that would follow Jesus, that's a recognition that we have, that we recognize that we are unworthy and yet we have been cleansed as a free gift of grace from God. And we see that Isaiah believed that this was true. He didn't doubt whether he was clean because the next thing he does is God says, who, will, who can I send? And he says, send me, right? <laughs> and so if he was still wallowing in his guilt and his, and his brokenness and in his imperfection, he would have been like, oh, I'm unworthy. You can't send me, God. I, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough. He says, I was broken. I was unworthy, but you've cleansed me, and so now I can be used by you. And that's what it should look like in our lives, right? Even though we're broken and even though we're not perfect, even though we're growing, uh, that we put our faith in the fact that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. We put our faith in Jesus, that what he has done is enough for us, and that is what brings us salvation. That's what makes us righteous is when we, we place our faith in that. And that's what Isaiah did. Isaiah believed that he had been made clean by the Lord. He was listening for the voice of the Lord, number four, right? He was listening to hear. And so when God said, who can I send? He said, hey, send me, right? So not only was he listening but he made himself available despite his past unworthiness. And finally, number six, he was sent with a message that unfortunately he knew would not be widely received or heard. He didn't allow the reception that his message was going to get affect his obedience to proclaim it. And so for us, it's the same way that we know, sadly, like the parable of the soils told us, that, that we're going to share the truth, but not everyone is going to receive it. Not everyone is going to respond. But we don't allow that to affect our desire to share it. And so in conclusion today, I would, I would, I would, I would say to you, uh, does your life exhibit some of these qualities that Isaiah exhibited? Does God bear weight, glory in your life? Are you aware of your brokenness, but are you also aware of the fact that what Jesus did is sufficient, and have you placed your faith in that? Are you listening for the voice of God? Are you making yourself available to him and, and whatever task he lays you before you? Are you going out in obedience, not because of the reception you expect to receive or the results you expect to get, but because He's called you to do it. If you're doing that, then you're in a position to, to have the parables reveal things to you. And as we look at these over the next several weeks, that God's going to grow and stir and, and do things in your heart and change you and push you forward and transform you. On the other hand, no one can say, well, I guess I'm just one of the ones that it's concealed from. I guess I, guess I don't get to understand. Um, if that were the case, you wouldn't be here this morning. <laughs> If that was the case, you would have checked out 25 minutes ago thinking about the NFL or lunch or Pinterest or whatever else, right? But so if you're still listening to me right now, if you're still with me, then that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working and calling you and saying, no, 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 I desire to reveal this to you. I don't want you to have your eyes closed. I don't want you to have your ears shut. I don't want you to have your heart hardened. I want you to respond. And you need to push in deeper. You need to say, God, okay, I don't get it. Help me to understand, Lord, uh, I have faith. Give me more faith, Right? Jesus made this truth available to us. And the question we have is, are we going to push into it to understand it? Are we the ones? Because it says, what does it say? Jesus says, to you, it has been given. But to others, it has not been given. And so there should be a divine humility that takes place here, right? It's not like, oh, I'm so smart and intelligent, I figured out uh, the code, and I uncracked the mystery, and, 
and I'm going to set up a training course and a workshop, and if you pay me $1,000, you can come sit under my teaching, and I will unlock the mysteries of the kingdom for you. No, it's not that. It's, it's a humility that says, man, I'm not that bright, <laughs> but God, for whatever reason, in his grace and mercy, has chosen to reveal this truth to me, and I'm so excited to know it that I want to share it with you. So there should be a divine humility about it. Jesus closes in this way, and I will as well. He says, um, he says prophets and righteous people have longed to look into what is being revealed to you right now. Uh, that King David, that Isaiah, that Nathan, the people that we talked about today, they were, they were people who pursued God and righteous, but they didn't know what we have right in front of us, the teachings of Jesus, the truth of Jesus proclaimed and revealed. Do we treasure that? Do we value that? Do we come to the parables and say, man, this is kind of confusing, but I know that Jesus is revealing something really important, so I'm going to keep digging until I get it. I'm going to keep pushing in until I understand because I know that there's something powerful about the kingdom that he wants to show me here. Do we value it in that way? Do we come hungry to learn and to know and to grow? Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that, uh, that you revealed your truth through parables, and I pray for every single person in this room uh, that we would, we would be those that have ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to understand, that, that we would allow these teachings, these parables to transform us, to change our hearts, that we would allow you to do the work that only you can do. That if we have un- any understanding, it's a, it's a gift from you, and we should, we should appreciate it as such. And so, God, I pray for those that are, that are seeking to know you, that are pursuing you the way that Isaiah pursued you, that... Um, that you would continue to grow in our hearts, it says, to those that, have been much, that it's been given, that, that you'll give even more, that you'll pour out in abundance. And so we ask for that humbly, and we pray for you to give out an abundance of knowledge that would transform not just our minds, but our hearts and our hands. It would change the way that we live our lives. As a church, that we, would, uh, we wouldn't come to your teaching and be unchanged, uh, that we would go out and do all that you would call us to do. Father, I also pray for those that are here today that may have felt up to this point in their life that, that your teaching and your truth has just been concealed, that they've been disinterested or they've just been confused or they haven't understood. And yet today, uh, Lord, uh, through the Holy Spirit, maybe you're working in their heart and maybe you're calling them and showing them that you do want to be known, that you're the creator of the universe, but you want to be their father. You want them to know you. That's where they're at today, Lord. I just pray that they would have the humility and the courage uh, to draw near to you, to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation that they would have the courage to share that with someone, uh, with someone that they know follows you, that they can they confide in, or that they would come to, uh, to one of the leaders of the staff here, Lord, and that they would uh, uh, express that so that we can help walk with them uh, into a new life with you. God, help us to go out changed, transformed into your likeness, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.